Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the mystery of who ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's No Mercy 2000. This is one I've wanted to talk about for a long time. I feel like this was a formative moment in my childhood, my wrestling fandom. You know, for people of a certain age, who shot JR was the question they wanted answered. For me, it was who ran over Stone Cold. Almost from the moment that car hit him at Survivor Series 1999, I had to know who was behind the wheel, who was the man who tried to put Stone Cold out. And in the weeks leading up to this, we got our answer, and it was a terrible one. It definitely wasn't the answer that you thought it was, which, spoiler alert, Shawn Michaels. <laughs> okay, that would have been the best, though, right? Do we agree on that, that that would have been the best possible reveal? Oh, it would have been fucking awesome if he was just like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm back. Yeah, like, and he would have made all the sense in the world to do it, as he has an obvious grudge against Austin, and he wanted to help out his friend Triple H. I mean, it makes sense, especially if that was going to be like if Triple H was still going to be like sort of the higher power guy. Yeah. Like he just had Sean do his dirty work for him. I mean, why not? Yeah, that would really been something. But Sean was not ready to come back at this point. No, instead, we got good old happy go lucky Rikishi, the dancing man who puts his ass on people's faces. And they decided to turn him heel and give him an opportunity at the big time. To, let's say, unsuccessful results. So, yeah, I mean, it's the year 2000. Things have never been better for the WWF. Um, We covered the SummerSlam from this year back in August. And it's only been a couple months, but we've had some really big changes since then. Um, I mean, the first most notable one is Steve Austin's back. Uh, This company is already on top of the world, and now they're getting the biggest star in wrestling back, who, after he had his neck surgery the previous year, it was definitely not a sure thing he was ever going to get back in the ring. The fascinating thing about him coming back is not only did people not necessarily know that he was going to come back, but because of that, they had had to kind of move on as a company. Like the company had been centered around him for so long and had really readjusted on the fly to be based completely around the rock. So the Austin comes back just one year later, but to a totally different environment that sort of doesn't need him anymore. It, it just does feel like a totally different company from when he left. Like they've definitely, tone down the raunchiness of their storylines they have all these new stars like you know when he left honestly when he left it felt like their roster was getting a little thin but now a year later they've added so much talent like jericho's really gotten over they've added the radicals they've added taz they've added raven um they just feel like kurt angle has gone from you know a geek to a star they just feel like they're in such a stronger position. And yeah, they've thrived without him. And now he's coming back. And they're unfortunately, the way that they bring him back doesn't do him a ton of favors because he's no longer like the happy go lucky. Well, if he ever really was, but he's no longer like kind of like a vehicle for the fans to like be like, yeah, stun that guy. Yeah, that kicks ass. Now he's almost like a sadistic Steve Austin. <laughs> His character has take, takes a very dark turn here as he just no longer has any friends, like no longer is uh, there's no comedy or lighthearted anything like just here for revenge. And he just t- 
takes it out on the entire roster in the weeks leading up to this show. Now, as we've mentioned many times before, I only started watching wrestling again at Fully Loaded in this year. So, and I'd missed the entire Attitude Era. This was my introduction to Steve Austin. Was him coming back as this. And man, I did not like him at all. I thought he fucking sucked. I was like, can this guy please get off my television? He's such a bummer. He just, he's just mad all the time. It is, again, it just... it's a weird time for him to come back. And like, obviously great to get him back. I was a huge fan. So I loved having him back, but yeah, it just doesn't feel like it quite fits at first. And whoever he's going to come back up against is going to be in a bad position because Steve Austin is going to come back and he's going to tear his ass into pieces. Unfortunately, Rikishi's put in that spot. I'm not sure that anybody could have really handled that, but man, they just feed Rikishi into a wood chipper. I mean, Austin even demolishes Triple H when Triple H is revealed to ultimately be the guy behind it. Yeah. Like, obviously nothing is going to stand in his way coming back until he eventually gets to the rock. And I kind of feel like, I don't know when exactly it was that they knew what they were going to do with the car thing. I think, uh, like, the commonly held urban legend is that Stephanie just sat up in a meeting one day and just like, it should be Rikishi. And everyone else was like, fine, whatever. There's no, there's not a lot of obvious options, but I feel like there's plenty of good ones. Just because they've got a bunch of really, you know, talented guys who could use this rub. Although, again, it's questionable. Is this going to be a rub or are they just going to get killed by Austin? I say for the right person, maybe it's a rub, but like, that's why I don't necessarily think it should have been like an up and comer. Like, obviously it could have been like a Jericho or a Benoit at the time or Rikishi, but it almost would have been better if it was somebody like Shawn Michaels or Mick Foley, someone that it wouldn't hurt them to just get their ass beat by Steve Austin. And, but it still would have made for a good story. Yeah. I mean, I think Michaels obviously is the most exciting possibility because you would have a legend returning to the ring. And like, Physically, he could have wrestled at this point. I, you know, he's definitely in shape. He comes back two years after this, and it was like he had never missed a day in the ring, but he just, you know, mentally was not at a point where he wanted to get back in the ring. How far removed are we from when they tried to bring him back, but he was so, like, drunk and high that he that hasn't even that hasn't happened yet? That happened oh. about six months after this. That's around WrestleMania 17. Oh, that's a drag. So that that's probably what would have happened if they had tried to have it be him. So it's probably very much for the best for him that it did not happen that way. But man, it would have kicked ass. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, you know. Just not the right time, unfortunately. So Austin came back at Unforgiven, um, swearing he was going to track down the person who hit him with the car back at Survivor Series 99. Um, Shane McMahon had promised to reveal who it was, but it turned out it was a ruse to try to get revenge on Steve Blackman. And Austin just ended up stunning both Blackman and Shane. And then Austin, you know, is going to conduct his own investigation, which really just consists of like, interfering in every single match on the show and just stunning anyone who gets in his way. Um, 
This brings him into conflict with Mick Foley, who was trying to maintain order on the show. And I really kind of enjoyed this because like these guys have a well-established on-screen relationship. They have been rivals, but also friends over the years. That's what I really liked about that was the subtext of it, which is that the only person in the whole company that Steve didn't hate was Mick because they had such a history and he respected him. So he didn't want to get in conflict with Mick, but he just, they just were inevitably going to have problems because unfortunately Mick is now an authority figure over Steve Austin. And you know what happens to those. Yeah. So, I mean, Foley warns him like you need to stop doing this. And when he won't listen, he suspends him and then Foley promises that he will find out who did it. And we're told um, they promote an episode of Raw that like Foley says he's going to find out who did it. That show starts with him coming to the ring saying he's going to reveal who did it. And Shawn Michaels comes out, which I was in heaven. Shawn Michaels is back. Unfortunately, it turns out it was not Shawn Michaels. As turns out he was actually in San Antonio hanging out with his wife that day. I just really wish that I could have been inside the brain of little Steve in that moment when Shawn Michaels' music hits and you're like, I was right! Redemption! I mean, it's, it's exa- I think there were, I think people were thinking this. I, there had been clues. Wasn't one of them that it was, that they found a blonde hair? So yes. like to back up, the clues. It was the Rock's rental car. Yes, and there was. was a pair of The Rock's sunglasses in the car. But The Rock maintained he had reported the car stolen that day uh, before it hit Austin. So someone stole The Rock's rental car and hit Austin with it. Yes. Uh, they found blonde hair in the car. And then I think at the very last minute they threw in that the seat was pulled all the way back. So it must have been someone either tall or heavy who was driving. So obviously there are limited people that it could be. They they do wind up, and I'll give them credit for this, is that at least they found a solution that fit all of their own clues. Yes. They didn't like retcon I mean, I all think the things the, that they said. I think the clues were created for the man. Other than the car being rocks was that was all the way back in 99. It was like when they were doing a police investigation on screen, the police questioned rock because it was his car. I would imagine that the idea was we don't know when Steve's going to be back. If it's at a time when it's right for rock to turn heel, we'll just have it be rock. And then when it was time for Steve to come back, they were like, well, no, Rock's the hottest baby face in the world. We can't turn him yet. (laughs) So I'll just fucking find somebody else. But they knew that they were getting to, as soon as they could get Austin back, I think they knew like, all right, we're doing Austin Rock. We don't know when we'll, how much Steve has left. We got to fucking do this match. It's the biggest match we can possibly do. So whether it was going to be because of him hitting him with the car or not, they were going to get to that match. Yeah. Um, only question is, yeah, babyface versus babyface, or who's going to be the heel. So, I mean, it comes down to the end of the show, and there's some tag match. I don't know, Rock and Rikishi against, I don't know, I don't even remember who it was, Angle and somebody, I think. 
Probably. I don't know either. So Foley comes out and he says he knows who did it. It was Rikishi. And everybody's reaction was, of course, it's not Rikishi. But then Rikishi gets on the mic and says, yeah, I did it. I ran over Austin. And the response is basically, there's like a hum of like everyone in the audience not talking. What you want in a moment like that is like an explosion of sound because everyone's just suddenly like talking to each other like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Instead, what you get is like a whole audience at the same time going like, huh. Oh, really? That's it? (laughs) Yeah, I can't. It can't express enough how disappointed I was. And like maybe there was never a perfect answer to the question, but like. You at least have to do it in such a way that it doesn't feel so anticlimactic. And Rikishi hadn't even been a big part of anything at that point. <laughs> like, and they started rush. They tried right before the reveal to establish him and The Rock as being like family and like being a big deal. Because they'd never really acknowledged that much before. So that it would seem like a big deal when he said, I did it for The Rock. Yeah. But I it doesn't. It. For my people. It doesn't come off that way at all. It comes off as like, all right, whatever. Yeah. So his explanation, he did it to help The Rock because the WWF has always been about the great white hope, whether it was Bruno Sammartino or Hulk Hogan or then Steve Austin. He wanted The Rock to get his shot and not just be, you know, one of the island boys or whatever. I mean, this doesn't make a ton of sense because The Rock has already been the WWF champion multiple times by 1999, is one of the biggest stars in wrestling, but, you know, whatever. It was what they had. At least it's something. Like, I'm going to give them at least a little bit of credit for coming up with something that at least feels like a premise. Like, you can see how somebody in Rikishi's position would make that decision. At least they came up with a reason to some extent. Yeah. I mean, his delivery on this promo, not good. Did not not feel like he was up for the moment. I mean, all you need to know is that the only thing that you at home right now know about this promo is, I did it for the rock. I did it for the people. So that's not because it was a good promo. Let's just run through all the possibilities here. So like could be the rock, but they don't want to turn the rock heel right now. Um, could be triple H who basically they end up retconning it. And triple H basically ends up being the guy who did it, even though he didn't drive the car. He was the mastermind. Which is a shame, because at this point, they're in the middle of turning him babyface. And it's he's getting really over as a face. Hugely over. And they end up just having to kind of kill the issue with Kurt and Stephanie, which is, again, one of our favorite storylines. Yeah, it was probably the hottest thing in the whole company at the time. Um, I mean, other options. Angle, Jericho, Benoit, maybe Undertaker. Taker doesn't have a ton going on at this point. I mean, Taker's not a bad option, though it kind of doesn't feel right for his character because you kind of feel like he would just go up and beat Austin's ass instead of running him over with a car. Yeah. And the other one, Taker wasn't on this show. Yeah, what's he doing at this point? I don't know. He gets a match with Kurt the next month, but yeah, no Taker or Kane on this show. Well, thank God, because 
I feel like every show from this era we do, they're either wrestling each other or the big show, so. Yeah. Um, you know who else I wanted it to be? Who? Raven. Oh, Steve. (laughs) Yeah. I was so, I thought Raven was going to be a main eventer when they brought him in. I mean, in your defense, you couldn't have known about the heat that he had with Vince. No, I did not know that Raven (laughs) bought Teenage Shane drugs. I did not know that. (laughs) Had I known that, yeah, I would have had lower expectations. You did not know that Raven was going to turn himself into some sort of redheaded pirate character. Like, that's probably not what you expected when the coolest character from the indies came into this company. Oh, Raven. (laughs) See, my thing was, I came in right about this point. So I was introduced to the mystery right here. And literally, even though he was, I had only been presented Triple H in like one particular way, I knew it was Triple H. Like, I was like, well, this is Triple H, right? Like, this is what he would do. So even when I, like, that Verkishi admitted it was him, I was like, no, I still think it's Triple H, though. Yeah, so tonight Austin and Rikishi are going to have a match. It's not really a match, but they're going to have a match, and we know it's not going to end well for Rikishi. It's a Rikishi's career on a pole match, and it's not yeah. going to be good. No, Austin's going to pull it down, turn that bitch sideways, and stick it straight up his candy ass. Yep. Uh, the main event is The Rock defending the WWF title against Kurt Angle, who's going to be managed by Stephanie McMahon. This is like basically the next step in the Kurt Triple H feud, but they've kind of blown that off by this point. Um, Kurt and Triple H wrestled at Unforgiven, which was probably too soon to do the singles match between them. And Triple H won because Stephanie kicked Kurt in the nuts. Like she had to make her choice. And she stayed with her husband. And that, you know, is kind of the end of the issue. Although here Stephanie is managing Kurt because Triple H doesn't want her to manage him because he's afraid she's going to get hurt. They kind of take take a step back from like the ultra mega heat that they were building. And instead it becomes about Triple H doesn't want his wife coming down to ringside. She's a liability. She's a distraction. And so Kurt's like, hey, what if you manage me instead? And out of spite, she decides to do so. Yeah, which is an interesting storyline development. Um, I think we kind of agreed. We probably would have put the belt on Kurt back at SummerSlam with like yes. something where it's ambiguous, where Stephanie helps him, but maybe she didn't mean to. Yeah, maybe she's trying to help both of them, but she accidentally yeah. screws over her husband or something yeah, like that. Yeah. That, to me, would have been the most interesting way to go. And you can stretch that. You can get a few months out of whose side is Stephanie actually on. Absolutely. Part of the problem is, is that they already know what the world title is going to be at WrestleMania. And you probably could have stretched Kurt Angle and Triple H all the way to WrestleMania. But they had no intention of actually doing that. Well, and like, they end up needing Triple H to turn heel because Rikishi bombs so bad. They need something else for Austin to do. Yeah. It's a shame. But, and I do wonder how much it... Kurt Angle almost feels like he failed to launch to a certain extent. Like, Kurt Angle gets over as a huge star. Don't get me wrong. But he had the potential to be, like, on that Triple H, Rock, Austin tier. And I feel like he never quite gets there. And I think most of that is because 
all of his major storylines always seem like they just get cut short. Yeah. And he's, he, I think he was cursed by being too good at comedy because they just booked him in so much. They made, had him do so much comedy because he's so good at it. But I think it undermined his ability to really draw long term. And somehow I just don't take Kurt with hair that seriously. Yeah, he's a just the well, hair. He's, it's just like cool shaving thing. his head seems like it changed him so much. Yeah. It was just like the transition to, oh, I can take him seriously now. Yeah. He doesn't like, look like a dork. Yeah. Dork with a receding hairline. Yeah. Um, so also on the card, we're going to have Triple H against Chris Benoit, um, which, God, that's a hell of a matchup this year. Um, Triple H at probably his physical peak and Benoit just about there, too. Um, I thought a more entertaining match than they would have in 2004 when Triple H was a lot bulkier. Absolutely. And Benoit is really doing good work here like he's he had always struggled before now to deliver any sort of character outside of his actual wrestling but they're really finding ways to make him work in storylines just by having him be like basically a vicious dickhead to people like he's still not cutting promos because he still can't really do that but he can like go out there and like be on the side of the ring during your match and interfere and be a dickhead like they're finding ways to make it work yeah. Um, did you find it a little uncomfortable to watch the segments where he's threatening Stephanie? Why, yes. Yes, I did, Steve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just plays that ice-cold sociopath just a little too well. I'm never able to fully... Even later, when he was like, lovable Chris Benoit, the good family man... I was never able to fully forget this whole serial killer period he had right here where that was basically, yeah, that was his gimmick is that he was so intense and vicious that he was unstoppable. Like he was just a mean dickhead of a man. And yeah, it's, it's difficult to pull it apart from reality now, man. Uh, Yeah. Don't love watching him, you know, threaten and assault women. It is definitely a little uncomfortable knowing uh, what will happen at the end of his life. There was, I forget what show I was watching, but it was like a show from like 2002 or something like that. But like he looks at Stephanie and he points at her and he does like the slit his throat thing. And I was like, oh boy, okay. Um, the other big development is that Raw has moved uh, from USA to TNN. Uh, just debuted on TNN a couple weeks before this. Uh, USA lowballed Vince when the TV rights were up for renewal, so they switched over to TNN. Really kind of feels like the end of an era when they moved from USA. And it just, Raw on TNN slash Spike TV just never felt right to me. No. It doesn't feel right, and they make some, like, changes to like the way it kind of looks too to kind of go along with that and those they're not great choices so it just winds up feeling like a little bit of an inferior product i just kind of associate their time on tnn with like 
2003 and like everything's like not great anymore. Yeah. It's probably a coincidence that them being on TNN coincided with their fall, but at the same time, it's it just presented a, a lackluster presentation by comparison. Also, less people watch TNN than USA. That's just <laughs> yeah. an established fact. Yeah, it's just it's not it was not as in as many homes. Their ratings they took a big dive the first week and they never got back to where they were. Like whether it was just people didn't have the channel or like, you know, just the littlest change in habit was enough to break it for some people, which is kind of amazing, but just, yeah, switching to a different channel somehow was enough to get some people to quit watching. Yeah. Oh, wrestling is not on tonight. Oh, well, Mm -hmm. guess I'll never watch it again. And that's just how it went for some people. They yeah. never watched it again. I mean, we know TNN will turn out to be a much worse TV partner for WWE than USA, and they'll move back to USA in 2005 and basically go on to conquer the world with them, become yes. a global entertainment company. I mean, you just WWE belongs with NBC Universal. That's their partner. That's their home. And it. Big credit to, I forget what the name of the woman is who took over USA. Uh, right? Bonnie Hammer. Yes. Because she's the one who realized, like, what the fuck are we doing? We had yeah. an amazing partnership with this basically free content mill. Yeah. Like, Let's go back to that. No, what the fuck did USA have without Raw? Nothing. And then what when Raw comes Nikita? back is when USA gets hot again. They yeah. end up having this huge run of shows with... What burn notice suits um psych yeah like just this huge run of shows that like the reason they could get these shows over is because people watched usa for raw yeah what it actually was was they had they had their first actual hit in monk which was a little bit before the rest and then they were like all right we got to relaunch our whole brand like around this and we can launch all these other shows but we really need a tent pole what if we just got wrestling back and they launched every single new show right after Raw? Every single one. Yeah. For years, it would be like, characters welcome. Here's WWE. And now here's Psych. <laughs> like, it would just, it was such great branding and it worked so well that USA became a relevant brand again. Yeah. And they can always have, like, the stars of the shows do a guest spot on Raw to promote it. Like, Perfect. Do you remember those commercials where it would just be like, this is the dude from Burn Notice and the big show eating dinner? <laughs> yeah. It was just fun. That's cross-promotion, man. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So one big effect this has is this, you know, e- ECW gets fucked here. Like, yeah, it does. They landed their big national TV deal on TNN the year before this. And now after a year, TNN has gone out and landed the biggest wrestling company in the world. They actually let ECW stay on TNN for a while. Like, I don't remember when they actually get dropped. I think it's like early 2001 when they're about to go down. I always forget that they were both on the channel at the same time because I had no concept that ECW was a thing that existed at the time. But that's so funny to me that they just they just let them keep being there. But like they could not more have been like, yeah, we actually got the thing that we wanted for real. So bye. Yeah. So t- tough break for ECW, and then they cannot find another TV partner because nobody wants to put wrestling on TV at this point. How wild! By the time is they're that? looking, I mean, wrestling. I just by that point, 
I think everybody's belief was it was only WWF that would work. Like WCW has been discredited and ECW has had their run and failed. And they can't like I'm kind of amazed like an FX didn't give ECW a shot because it seems like it would have been a natural fit. Do you feel like there's like an element of TV networks that are like kicking themselves years later? Like, look, we could have bought this shit for like a dollar. Yeah. You didn't have to pay. You didn't have to pay them, or you barely had to pay a rights fee at this point. Like you were yeah. doing an ad barter most of the time. Like like WWF is getting a rights fee at this point, but that's a pretty new development, and it's not very big. It's just so funny to me that like networks didn't see the future coming at all, and if they had, they would have realized how important cheap content mills like that are. But, like, how could you have foreseen the rise of Netflix and digital streaming? You, you couldn't have. It's impossible. Yeah. So to get into the show, it's uh, Sunday, October 22nd in the year 2000. We are at the Pepsi Arena in Albany, New York. Uh, sellout crowd, over 14,000 on hand. Show does 550,000 buys. That is a great number for No Mercy. That's a killer number. Jesus. And not, I mean, this is not like a loaded card. Like, it's a good card, but like, it's Austin's first match back. But he's wrestling Rikishi. Just, you know, company's hot and they're getting Austin back. This is the Uh, first pay-per-view with Rock and Austin on it in over a year. So, I mean, that's something right there. The previous year, again, with Rock and Austin on it, though, had only done 327,000 buys. And that was for Austin challenging Triple H for the title. Jeez. Rock versus the British Bulldog. See, how fucking nuts is this, though? That, like, they do 500,000 for a no fucking mercy here. A year from now, this company's dead. (laughs) A year from now, I bet... can't remember what No Mercy 01 did, but I bet it's barely 300,000. It's like, it's a joke. And that's such a depressing thing to say. Um, on commentary, we've got the uh, venerable team of Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. Didn't find anything too notable in their commentary tonight. I can't even remember anything in particular that they had to say. So, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. They were just themselves. They just smooth at this point. They just like kind of blend in with the background of the programming, (laughs) which is what you want them to do. Uh, Man, this was an intense opening package. Steve Austin juxtaposed with like a rabid dog like a rottweiler and he's just talking about how he's going to get revenge on he literally says he's going to kill rikishi i loved the callback to like the original branding of stone cold when he was just like a rabid dog like like breaking off the chain and like attacking like i loved that and it like you feel it too he literally says and i i think i said to you when i first saw it like are you allowed to say that you're going to kill someone on WWE I, television? I guess maybe on pay-per-view it's allowed, but yeah, this was, I mean, they're not messing around here. And like, you get the impression that like, yeah, that's where we're at. The stakes have been raised ludicrously high. 
when they eventually get to the end of the storyline and they have to like bring it back to Earth, they basically just have to pretend that all of the stuff that had happened didn't happen because they get to a point where like you literally can't go further. Like people are literally trying to murder each other on television. Opening match is the Dudley Boys Table Invitational. It's a tag team turmoil tables match. This is fun. Yeah. I wish we had one of these every pay-per-view to this day. <laughs> First entrants are Too Cool and Lowdown. What's your favorite Lowdown match, Steve? Man. What were they going for here? Just neither got D-Lo and... Is this Mosh or Thrasher? I can never remember. Uh, This is Mosh. Yeah. Neither guy had anything to do. Uh... D'Lo, I feel like, never really recovered psychologically from the Draws accident. Absolutely not. And, like, we're a couple years removed from that now, and, like, his career... It's only only been a year at this point. Has it really? Yeah, that was the fall of 99. So, like, Lowdown is his attempt at a comeback, and, like, it just doesn't work. They put Tiger Ali Singh with them to try to make it work. Yeah. It's just like a collection of vaguely brown people. Like, That's the thing. It's kind of like, I guess at some point they they make them kind of Arab. But like, come on. It's, they, they just, they're wrestling in track pants. They don't really have a gimmick or character. It's just two guys put together. Yeah, there's, there's nothing here. They're just trying to get something out of them. Too cool. Still over. They've cooled off a little bit. Yeah, you can tell that they're kind of coming to the end of their run. They don't like, have Rikishi anymore. Uh, Christopher's kind of a mess at this point. Yeah, I don't know how you plan on spinning any of this off into anything else. Like, it's pretty much done. Um, so not much of note happens. Lowdown set up for, like, simultaneous frog splash superplex through the tables but those both get countered, and they both end up going through the tables, so they're eliminated. Um, but only one person needs to go through one of the tables, but they both did. Yep. Just to job them both out as hard as you possibly can. Uh, the next team in is Raven and Taz. Like I said, I had a lot of hopes for Raven, but instead... He is in this job or tag team with Taz. He only debuted the month before this. uh, So this is his return to WWF pay-per-view. Return to help Taz win a strap match against Jerry Lawler at Unforgiven. Gosh. If you can judge how you're going to be pushed based on how you start, that's about as bad a sign as you can possibly get. Like, Taz is already dead in the water, and you came back to help him win a match against Jerry Lawler. Uh, They wrestle for a couple minutes. Scotty does the worm under a table in the ring. That was cool. gets countered, and Taz and Raven double suplex Scotty through a table. Uh, Dudley boys are the next team out. They get a big reaction. Uh, Bubba Bomb on Taz. Was up, headbutt on Raven. Bubba then hits a splash through a table on Taz for the elimination. And then the final entrance are the right to censor the team of the good father and Bull Buchanan. Yes, the good father and Bull Buchanan. What a team. Uh, another collection of guys that we just have around. 
let's just fucking put him in a team and see if it works. Yeah, they're getting heat from the sponsors. They kind of can't use the Godfather gimmick anymore. Not that it had a lot of legs left in it, honestly. No, no it didn't. Um, the ref gets bumped, and so he doesn't see Bubba powerbomb Buchanan through a table. Godfather comes in with a chair shot on Bubba, and then he puts Bubba in the wreckage of the table. The referee wakes up and sees this, and he declares right to censor the winners. Um, another referee comes in and explains what happens. The match gets restarted. Godfather misses the hoe train, which I think they should have called the no train. Yeah, I love that. And gets hit with a 3D through the table. The Dudleys get the win. Fun match. I enjoyed oh, yeah. that. I mean, these tables matches they were doing there in this time. There's a reason why fans still have a hunger for this kind of thing to this day. They're just it, It's a fun gimmick to kind of just do in a throwaway match like this. Yeah. Uh, we see Trish with TNA backstage and then a quick shot of Rikishi, who is just like stalking the parking lot with a sledgehammer waiting for Austin. And then we've got TNA and Trish Stratus against the APA and Lita. This uh, stems from a game of poker that ended with Tess and Albert betting Trish's clothes when they ran out of money. So when they lost the game, Trish ended up having to strip. And then Tess and Albert beat up Farouk and Bradshaw. The number of storylines that have come based entirely around can we get Trish to take her top off on camera is probably some of the most inventive writing these writers ever did. And I guess I got to respect that. So it takes a very dark turn a few years later. Yeah. But like there are some people backstage that are clearly working through some sexual stuff when it comes to Trish Stratus. Um, Lita comes out first, and then we see Test and Albert beating up the APA backstage. Um, looks like the match is not going to happen. Lita goes to help, but she gets jumped by Trish. Uh, Trish hits a bulldog. Um, Albert hits Tri- uh, Albert hits a catapult on Lita into the ropes. But then Matt and Jeff Hardy show up to make the save, and they run TNA off. So that's like an ongoing feud from the summer because that match was all the way back at fully loaded. I feel like Trish and Lita just never stopped feuding for like three or four years. And it was literally just every time any of them would appear on camera, it has had something to do with the other one. And I can't blame them because like they had like liquid heat whenever they were in the ring together. Like it was just some people just have chemistry like that. So I never really got old. So the uh, sight of Tess descending on Lita to like beat the shit out of her, eh, knowing what comes later with Tess is a bummer. Then Lillian Garcia interviews Edge and Christian, who pulled out of the tables invitational, claiming they had food poisoning. They do a promo about how they thought they were sick from nuts, but their nuts are actually fine. Yeah, they had good nuts. I'm glad that they uh, were able to preserve their nuts. The sanctity of their nuts. We see another shot of Rikishi waiting for Steve Austin with his sledgehammer, and then 
we've got a steel cage match between Chris Jericho and X-Pac. This has always been a head scratcher to me that they put Jericho in a feud with X-Pac here. Now, according to legend, this was done basically to see if Jericho didn't suck. What? They thought Jericho? This is 2000? No, I thought that was in 1999 when they did that. Yes, but they did it again because they did were thinking of actually... You had to prove himself again? Just because they were thinking of actually pushing him. So they gave him X-Pac to like try to make his first impression a second time, and this time he actually made it work. By this point, he's one of the most overfaces in the company. Yeah. But they haven't actually done anything with him until like after this. <laughs> like they did the thing with Triple H. So yeah. like that was but that was literally like the first thing of note he'd ever been able to do in this company. Which is nuts if you think about it. <laughs> Match gets off to a little bit of a slow start, but they do some fun spots towards the end. Um X Pac almost gets out. Jericho hits him with a power bomb off the top rope. Um Pac gets a chair and he hits Jericho with it. He goes to climb out rather than crawl out of the door for some reason. Jericho pops up. He crotches X-Pac on the wall of the cage. He then gets Pac on the walls of Jericho, like up on the scaffold in on the top of the cage. It looked crazy dangerous to me when they got up there. I didn't realize until afterwards that they almost had one of those like almost built in like squares up there like they have on like the nxt cage for you perform spots off of so it wasn't as dangerous as it looked like from the first camera angle but like man that's still pretty precarious yeah um um Pac fights out jericho takes a fall from the top of the cage Pac goes to climb out he like stands on the door posing Jericho kicks, kicks the cage and Pac gets crotched on the door. Great spot. And that's then Jericho the, gets out the door to get the win. That's one of the coolest ways I've ever seen a cage match end. And like Pac just stays up there crotched and crying for like three minutes while Jericho leaves. But I feel like that spot Jericho takes off the top of the cage, that's like a super huge bump that I feel like yeah. no one even noticed during the context of the... Like, he took basically a swanton off the top of the cage and, like, hit himself, like, kind of on his upper shoulders. And it was for nothing. For nothing. Yeah. Both guys worked hard here. A lot of creative spots and some big bumps. This is, I want to say, the last thing I remember Pac doing that was good. It's thin after this. Yeah. This is like, then we get into X Factor, and that's just where his career kind of ends. You know I've got a soft spot for the X Factor. Well, we were dealing with the X Factor, and they had everything you ever wanted. And they'd never give that back. You know, it's, we were talking before the show about how, like, the heel turn for Rikishi basically ruined his career, because after this he basically has no future. But the same thing happens to X-Pac. His late 99 heel turn destroys his career. At one point, he was like the number three babyface in the company. Like, he's out of the business at like 32. Like, obviously here, he still has a lot left to offer. It's not like he's washed up by any stretch of the imagination. They just, he's just gone. (laughs) 
we see Steve Blackman at WWF New York and he puts on a little show with his, you know, whatever the little kendo sticks are called. Yep. Uh, then like we go real close to some crowd members while he's swinging those around. Actually, he's got he's got good control, though. That's good. Uh, then we go to Mick Foley's office. I love the Commissioner Foley office. What a great gimmick this was. Yeah, it was just always in a different place in the arena. It always had the little stuffed dog in there somewhere. Yeah, little props, the cactus. Yeah. Just what a fun time this is with Foley in charge. This really should have gone on longer. It's amazing that when you think about it, it lasts like what, like nine months? That's it? Like, you could have done this. Six, I think. I think he gets it in June and he's fired at the end of the year. And then he's back here and there for a few weeks after it. But, yeah, it's not long. I I think we could have been happy with this basically forever. Of just like, you can't have babyface authority figures forever, I guess, because at the end of the day, there's like, you need authority figures to help get heat on stuff sometimes. But man, it's just, I can't think of a time in wrestling that I more is represented by things actually being joyful and enjoyable to watch on a week-to-week basis more than like that six months. And he was a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, Rikishi comes in. He demands to know where Austin is. Foley says he's sure Austin will be there. Uh, we then get a recap of Eddie Guerrero being quote-unquote injured in a match against Chris Jericho on Raw. He won't be able to defend the Intercontinental title against Billy Gunn tonight, so instead it'll be Billy Gunn and China against the right to censor. And we end up never getting China versus Eddie. Somehow we just never get that match that had like a year's worth of build to it. That would have been so great. Just like China beating his goddamn ass would have been just cathartic. It just never happens. He just gets away with it. Man, that sucks. But also, big shout out to the most enduring and lovely relationship between two people in wrestling history, Billy Gunn and China, friends to the end. It really is nice how Billy is just always there for China. And vice versa. Just... From the very first time they ever literally meet in DX, like they never don't have each other's back. It's one of the only examples of genuine continuity I can remember. (laughs) That and Test and Shane McMahon. Just those two. Those are kind of the two relationships that always seem to endure in this era. They stood the test of time. Uh, so we've got the right to censor against Billy Gunn and China. It's Val Venus and Steven Richards. Um, Richards does a promo before the match where he says that right to censor would never hit a woman unless it was absolutely deserved. Well, that was a great line. Oh, my God. He was... Steven, oh, what a this, dirt bag. This gimmick had no future, obviously. But Steven Richards in this... It was the so role good of a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, he just crushed this. It's amazing that they had nothing for him once the gimmick was done. It because felt like, like he could have been a really good manager, and he only really ever managed Chronic after this. Yeah. For then, like a week. He does Chronic, and then he disappears, and then he manages Victoria like a yeah, year later. Yeah, he's like later. Victoria's boy toy or whatever that gimmick was. Yeah, what a weird... And in between... When was Stevie Knight... They pair, he, did they pair him with Jazz? Um... Is that 2002? 
Maybe. He has a run in the hardcore division in 02. Yeah. Stevie Night Heat is when, like, they stop paying attention to Sunday Night Heat, so he literally turns himself into the commissioner of Sunday Night Heat, and Vince isn't aware of it. Literally, he just starts basically, like, cutting promos because they have nothing else to put on the show, and he turns himself into this gimmick, and then Vince finally tunes into Sunday Night Heat, like, three months into this, and is like, what the hell is this? Yeah, why the hell is this entire show about Stevie Richards? I did not sign off on Stevie Night Heat. And he canceled also, it. He also calls Billy Gunn rectally obsessed. Which is accurate. <laughs> yeah. He is an ass man. Oh my god. Um, Richards and Shina tag in. She beats Richards up. Right to censor, turn the tide. They double team Gunn. They work on his arm. Hot tag to China. She hits a handspring elbow on Venus in the corner. A low blow on Richards. And then the famous are on Richards. Um, Bull Buchanan and Good Fathers show up, and um, their interference end up making the difference, and Right to Censor get the win. Yep. Nothing much to say about the match itself. Nothing no. you haven't seen from all of these guys a million times. <laughs> this feud ends up lasting. I mean, this feud goes all the way to WrestleMania, though. Yeah, because Ivory becomes like the crux of it. Ivory and yeah. China. Yeah, this is how they transition China into the women's division, which, like, probably would have been hotter if it had been her and Richards at WrestleMania. Yes. Yes, it would have been. Yeah. Uh, we see Stephanie and Triple H backstage. Stephanie asks Triple H to let her accompany him to ringside tonight. Triple H says Benoit is too dangerous. She then gives Stephanie a video of Benoit applying the crossface that she says will be helpful, and then she says she's got to go talk to Kurt. This is really interesting, because they'd never really done this with Steph before, like, right here, where they make it see, make it clear that, like, she's a really great manager and, like, really genuinely would help you if she was your manager. Like, she gives him this tape, which is, like, cropped footage of the crossface so we can learn how to get out of it. That's a that's like some amazing management. Yeah, absolutely. We don't give Steph enough credit. Like she's actually pulling her weight here. Yeah, they do something interesting with the show where they kind of establish that Stephanie is a great manager. Yeah. Like makes huge differences in the matches. She's why two different matches on this show in the way they do. It's pretty incredible. Um, then we've got Steve Austin against Rikishi, which I, you know, I think the match most people bought the show for, uh, Rikishi is out first. He's got the bad man music. Um, it's got slightly different entrance attire. It's, you know, vaguely Samoan ish. It's got flowers and stuff on it. Yep. I do like that. Um, I feel like. If you were going to go for this, you needed to repackage him a lot more. Like, he needs different ring gear. He needs different entrance gear. They give him the different music. Dump the bleach blonde hair. Have him go back to his natural black hair. And I think maybe if he, I mean, if his gimmick, if his gimmick is going to be that he's like a Samoan nationalist, he should probably give him kind of some traditional Samoan garb something yeah you can't just let him come out literally looking exactly the same yeah. as the comedy character we loved before that's not gonna work 
No. No. Big misfire with that, I think. Yeah, if you're trying to get us to take him seriously, you can either A, do this Moen thing, or B, go with his idea of making him like a rap mogul like Suge Knight and just put him in some fubu like what he pitched, and they didn't like it. Probably because nobody in WWE's office knew what that was. Yeah, the idea of him as kind of a crime lord is definitely interesting. Kind of kingpin-type character. Which, at some point, that character got pitched for Mark Henry, too. And it's an incredible idea with Mark Henry. Oh my god, I would have lost my mind for that to be Mark Henry. (laughs) He should be playing that character on WWE TV, like, right now. Yes, just like the final boss, Mark Henry. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Oh my god, Mark Henry is commissioner tomorrow. Book that shit. Uh, Rikishi gets on the mic. He says Austin isn't going to show up. He demands Foley come out and declare him the winner. Foley does come out, but as he gets to the ring, Austin's music hits. Austin's pickup truck rolls into the parking lot. He drives it all the way down to the ring. Um, It's the same truck that Rikishi smashed up with a sledgehammer on Raw. Um, Austin just whoops Rikishi's ass here. Just absolutely beats the hell out of him. They fight into the crowd. Rikishi gets a little offense in. Austin tries for a pile driver, but he gets backdropped on the concrete in the crowd. Austin whips Rikishi with a belt and then hangs him with a rope. Uh, questionable, I'd say. Extremely. <laughs> Austin with chair shots, Rikishi blades. Austin gets Rikishi's sledgehammer, swings at him with it, but Rikishi manages to duck. Austin throws Rikishi in the back of his truck. He drives like back to the parking lot. He gets Rikishi out, like puts him up against a cement wall, backs up the truck, goes to run him over, but police show up. A cop car pulls in front and Austin hits the cop car and then he's arrested. Yeah. And then he backs up and hits it again. Yeah. And then, like, literally 15 cop cars roll in. Like, this was incredible how many people they got here. I can't decide. And as I was watching, I watched it a couple different times. Because I wanted to figure out if this was cool or a terrible way to do this. (laughs) Was it better than the Daniel Bryan Roman Reigns car accident? It was way better than that, at least. Like, this felt real to an extent. I can't say that it didn't. It's just... The 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 last image you get of Rikishi, where he's literally just a bloody mess sitting in the grass outside, like a fat, dumpy mess of blood and guts, is such a burial of Rikishi, isn't it? I, I mean, he got decimated here. Like, he got a little bit of offense in here, but, like... Austin just destroyed him. Like, yeah. you can't have any credibility after this. Yeah, they, they come back with a rematch the next month, but there's no rematch to this. Austin beat his fucking ass and then was going to murder him, but was stopped by the police. Yeah, like, hard for the feud to continue, and it basically doesn't. They do have a blow-off cage match on Raw at some point, but they just kind of switch over to Triple H within a few weeks of this. Yeah. But, like, again, it's kind of established history that, like, Rikishi blew it, and that's why this didn't work. But honestly, if anybody had gotten the treatment that he got in this match, nobody's recovering from that. No, it's not going to work. 
The Rock couldn't have come back from a beating like this. And it does sort of feel like for that reason, it always had to be what they did, where they reveal somebody and then it turns out there's somebody else bigger because Austin has got to destroy the first guy. It's just going to work out that way. Yep, agreed. Uh, Next up for the European Championship, we've got William Regal versus Naked Midian. Explain Naked Midian to me. I have very limited memories of this. Uh, Midian just likes to be naked, I guess. He's very body positive. You know, that's good. And he has his junk stuffed into a fanny pack. I guess. Now, what's actually happening is he's wearing like a nude colored thong. Yeah. And with like a fanny pack over it. So like the idea is that he's got his stuff stuffed in the fanny pack. But every once in a while, the fanny pack will like flip up. And I know that there's the thong there, but but there's a visceral reaction of like, oh, not great. Regal gets on the mic and says he demanded that Midian wrestle in some proper attire tonight. So he is going to wear a shirt and some trousers. Love that. (laughs) I just, yeah, William Regal has just returned to WWE like a month or two before this. And like, what a welcome addition to the roster. It's just like to have things are only really funny if there's a straight man to react to them. And that's what William Regal was so brilliant at being as just like the straight man wandering through this ridiculous universe of like crazy cartoon characters. Like what the fuck is happening here? Um, Midian does in fact come out in a shirt and pants. The crowd is very disappointed. They wanted to see Midian naked, apparently. But luckily for them, he has every intention of stripping them off. Yeah, they work a match for a few minutes, and then Midian makes his comeback and strips off his clothes. What a comeback. What a baby face. (laughs) Midian goes to the top rope. Regal crotches him. Regal then hits the Regal cutter and gets the pin. Not much to that, but I I really enjoy Regal from this era. And this is just a fun situation to put him in. There's a place on every show for William Regal versus some kind of weirdo. Um, They replay a segment from Heat where Kurt Angle pretended to interview The Rock where they kind of cut together footage. This was kind of funny, but they probably didn't need to play this whole thing on the pay-per-view. No, this thing's long as hell. I mean, it is pretty funny. It goes on too long, but, like, man. Uh, Then Kevin Kelly interviews the Conquistadors, who do look suspiciously like Edge and Christian. I don't know why you're saying that, Steve. I don't know how they could possibly resemble Edge and Christian. Edge and Christian are not Mexican. Uh, They will only answer his questions in Spanish. See, that's proof right there. Next up, for the tag titles, we've got the Hardy Boys defending against the Conquistadors. Um, so what happened here is Edge and Christian lost the tag titles to the Hardys in a cage match at Unforgiven. And then the next night, Foley gave Edge and Christian a rematch in a ladder match on Raw. 
But the stipulation was that if Ed and Christian lost, they wouldn't be able to get another shot at the Hardys until they lost the belts. So the Hardys won, and Edge and Christian were out of contention. So right after that, the Conquistadors show up. Uh, the Conquistadors were, of course, a jobber tag team in the WWF in the 1980s and early 90s. Um, so Edge and Christian start dressing as the Conquistadors, and they get some wins and then um, you know get number one contendership here. So they've got a title shot. I, I have a soft spot for like this exact gimmick where somebody like gets fired or whatever and comes back under a mask. I always enjoy this. Yes. And I have a very sauce up for this particular version of it. Cause it's just so goddamn funny. Like that they would try to pull this off and that everyone except Jerry Lawler knows exactly what's going on. <laughs> and yet somehow they come here and they are the number one contenders and Mick Foley can't prove that it's Edge and Christian, but he fucking knows it's Edge and Christian. Yeah. I mean, King throughout the match just keeps slipping and saying Edge and Christian. Uh, they don't really, I also enjoy that they don't really even bother to like do any different moves. Like they, no, just they run do their, their own moveset. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Christian hits a reverse DDT on Matt, but Jeff breaks it up with the Swanton. Uh, Matt hits the twist of fate. He tries to unmask Edge, but it turns out he has a second mask on. Christian comes in and hits the unprettier and gets the pin, and we've got new tag champions here. Not a great match, but, you know, fun storyline. And considering the fact that Edge was wearing literally two masks, uh, pretty damn good match for that. Can't believe he could see anything. Um, so the next night on Raw, Edge and Christian challenged the Conquistadors for the tag titles. The Conquistadors quickly beat them, and then it was revealed that it was Matt and Jeff dressed up as the Conquistadors. Mick Foley declared that since they had beaten the previous champions, they were now the champions. LOL. God, what a great ending to that. That made me so happy. Yeah. Fudged a fun, really well done storyline here. See that that's when you talk about what's missing from like modern wrestling, it's like the lat level of storytelling going into like a mid card feud that otherwise didn't mean very much is all the difference. Like for whatever it is that we're saying about all the shows, all the matches that are on this show, every single one of them had like some really interesting build or some interesting wrinkle to it, and like someone who was like on their way up. God, I miss that. Uh, backstage, we see that Triple H is watching the Benoit tape. Uh, and then we've got Chris Benoit against Triple H. Not 100% clear to me from watching this show how this feud started. But Benoit attacks Stephanie, and then he costs Triple H a number one contenders match against Angle. And this quickly became a very intense feud. Yeah, basically, Angle and Benoit and Triple H and Rock, like their feud feuds kind of just flip because they were in so many tags together that they just kept coming into contact. That makes sense. And that's why you have those main event tag matches. So you could just seamlessly switch out. Love a good main event tag match. Me too. Um, Nice pop for triple H here. He's just kind of done a soft face turn. He never really turned face, but he's clearly been booked as 
you know, the good guy in his feuds the last couple months. And people are ready for it. He's been a heel for so long that, like, at this point, this is like when he comes back in 2002 and gets that gigantic babyface pop, that's not as surprising as people said it was at the time because people were ready for this. And they just kept not quite doing it. Yeah, I mean, they were definitely ready for him to turn face against Austin after WrestleMania 17. Yeah, and they just kept being like, ah, not this time, ah, not this time. And then when they finally gave it to him. Yeah, the thing is, when they finally did it, it ended up sucking. Yeah, it was horrible. He's a terrible babyface. But that's not the point. People wanted to You get it, and you realize you don't want it. Because he hadn't, had he, yeah. I mean, he was, I mean a face in D, he was a face in DX in 98. Yeah, but he was a terrible face. He was yeah, a terrible it's, face it's then. such a small part of his... It was, yeah, like, he'd been a heel, like, 99% of his career. And, like, a truly contemptible one. But, like, the better a heel you are, the more people want you to turn face. That's just how wrestling works. Uh, so they get started. They both are trying to out-wrestle each other. Triple H gets Benoit down, does his kind of Indian death lock, and then transitions into the Muda lock. Triple H's, like, weird knowledge of, like, obscure submission holds is one of my favorite things about him. Uh, yeah, he does the fucking Muda lock in this match, guys. He's been watching his Japanese tape. They go out to the floor where Benoit catapults Triple H into the ring post and then slams him into the steps. Spends the next couple minutes uh, working on that arm. He hits the diving headbutt. Triple H kicks out. Triple H makes a comeback. Hits a really nice reverse suplex. I always love that move if you can pull it off. I think he's the only person I ever saw really consistently do it well. Man. Yeah, it's tough to lift a guy like that. He hits the high knee and a neck breaker. Benoit breaks out the rolling Germans. Uh, Benoit locks on the cross face. Triple H manages to power out. He reapplies. Triple H powers out again as Stephanie comes down to ringside. Uh, Triple H sets up for the pedigree. Benoit reverses, tries for the cross face. Triple H takes advantage of Stephanie distracting the referee to hit a low blow and get the pin. Stephanie walks out looking very satisfied with herself. Excellent match here. Very excellent, yes. And I also do think that it's pretty interesting. I have no idea like how actually true this is, but I feel like this is one of the last times Triple H ever beats Chris Benoit. Because they make that basically part of their characters, is that Chris Benoit specifically has Triple H's number every single time they wrestle <laughs> for like four years. <laughs> So maybe he needed Stephanie to beat Chris. Maybe Damn that's right. just how it is. Yeah, she's the best. Best manager in the game, bro. All right, so it's main event time. We've got The Rock defending the WWF Championship against Kurt Angle. Uh, Kurt is out first with Stephanie backing him up. He got this title shot by beating Triple H on Raw after um, Benoit interfered. Uh, During the introduction, Finkel announces that it's going to be a no-disqualification match, which was not announced before this. Um, Plays some role in the match and the finish, but not that much. What do you think the point was here? I'm not really sure. Was it supposed to seem like Stephanie was pulling strings for Kurt? 
that's what I thought it was, but like they don't make enough of it. No. And like Cole is the commissioner, so it's unclear how Stephanie would have influence over him. Yeah. I, I it almost just can't wound up seeming random. I don't know. I mean, almost. It does feel like every main event in this era is an ODQ match, just because they've kind of got there. They're going to fight on the set, they're going to fight in the crowd, they're going to do an announce table spot, and then people are going to interfere and we can do the finishing sequence. They almost might as well have just made like all WWE title matches no DQ matches, because I honestly feel like they would have loved that freedom, but they just there's still some traditionalists left in the company. Yeah. Uh, Rock is out next. They fight right off the bell. Uh, Kurt gets the advantage after a distraction from Stephanie, but Rock makes a comeback. Uh, they fight up the ramp. They fight like around the stage. We didn't really talk about the set. It's pretty simple, just a big screen. And then there's like, it's kind of like a plastic wall that kind of looks like a fence. The thing I thought was interesting here was this was almost like a predecessor to like their subsequent sets that would always have like, the tight, you know, the big screen with the video and then like a smaller screen under it. Like this was kind of the original version of that where each guy would have like some kind of special light show on the fence. You know, I didn't even think about that, but you're absolutely right. Like this, it's almost like they made this and somebody got the idea like, oh, we should probably go back to that. That was awesome. Um. Rock grabs a cardboard cutout of himself, puts it in front of Kurt, and then punches it into his face. Loved that. Loved him punching himself into Kurt's face. Um, Rock sets Kurt's knee up on the stairs, hits it with a chair twice. Rock gets Kurt in the sharpshooter. Kurt taps, but Stephanie manages to distract the referee. Rock then chases Stephanie. I can't believe how well she could run in heels. And Rock catches, or Kurt hits Rock with a belly-to-belly suplex. Like, imagine that you're wearing, like, four-inch heels, which she constantly was. And you're just, all you're running on is, like, canvas mats and, like, yeah. metal grating. Cannot the, believe she didn't destroy her ankles. The balance of this woman. She's like a ballerina. Rock makes a comeback. They brawl out on the floor. Rock sets up for the rock bottom. Angle fights out. He hits Rock with the title belt, but it only gets two. Rock hits a superplex. We see that Kurt's got a really nasty gash over his eye, and I'm not really clear how he got that. Yeah, I think it must have just been a hard way, because I'm not clear. Nothing seemed like it would have caused that. No, I can't. I mean, like, he didn't get hit with the belt, so it's not like the edge of it hit him. Yeah. Um, Rock hits a DDT. He hits Stephanie with the rock bottom. Triple H shows up. He hits Rock with the pedigree. Triple H then carries um, Stephanie away. Rikishi shows up. He accidentally hits Rock with a super kick. Kurt hits Rikishi with the Olympic slam, and then he hits Rock with the Olympic slam, gets the pin. Kurt wins the title in a huge upset, and he actually gets a big pop for it. I I remember watching this and it didn't really occur to me just what an upset it was because again I just started watching fairly recently and the, I was kind of new to all of these characters but 
like it really stuck with me because not only does he get a big pop as like the shock of that moment, but also I think a lot of the fans really wanted to see him get to that point. Like he had really just been rising like a rocket through the entire roster for a year. And like to see him get to that point. And I know that we were supposed to like make fun of him for his like crying reaction as he got the belt, but I thought it was kind of touching. Like he's so happy. Good for him. He deserves that. Yeah. So, I mean, the show just ends with Kurt celebrating with the belt. I mean, like we said, a gigantic upset. Like, Rock had had what felt like an incredibly title, long title run at the time. It had only been six months. But this, I think this seemed like the long, I think this was the longest anybody had held this title in several years at this point. It felt endless. Like, on wrestling forums at the time, if you go back and look, literally people were complaining about how he, like, was he ever going to lose the goddamn belt? Yeah, I mean, longest title run since, like, Shawn Michaels in 97, 98, probably. Yeah, it's, Maybe it was so. longer than that. But yeah, I mean, just the way they booked at this time, people just didn't really hold the belt longer than, you know, three three months would feel kind of long if somebody held it that long. Yeah. Even Triple H, Triple H. Yeah, how long did Triple H ever actually hold it? He kept losing. Yeah, Triple H didn't really hold it that long because he kept losing it. Yeah, I don't think he ever held it more than like two months in a row. He just kept getting it back. That's how he becomes a 10-time champion by 2003. Yeah. Um. So that's a wrap on this show. I didn't think this was the greatest show, but I don't know. Do you feel like people got their money's worth if they bought this back then? Absolutely. Like, see, just seeing, like, you get to see Steve Austin again. You get to see, like, there's some really good matches on here, some fun stuff. And then the main event, it seemed like this was just going to be, like, a status quo thing where, like, The Rock beats yet another up-and-comer. And instead, you get to see, like, the coronation of something special and new. Like, that's very cool. Like, I think I definitely would have been happy with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Austin Rikishi thing was disappointing to me, but it just, you know, wasn't good. It wasn't going to work. And they realized that. And, you know, they call an audible on that storyline within about a week. I mean, I think it's maybe even the next night on Raw, they start teasing that Rikishi's got an accomplice. And we know that'll ultimately be revealed as Triple H and he'll turn heel and restart his feud with Austin. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's all good in its way. I just, I'm not really sure what I would have wanted to see Austin do. Like if he stays a baby face after the feud with the rock, like if everything goes according to plan and he, he beats the rock at WrestleMania and he just stays the top baby face. Like I'm not, I'm not sure what I want him to do after that. So it it really does feel like he came back to a company that almost didn't fit him anymore. Yeah. I mean, he had, this ends up, I think being one of the best runs of his career, like especially in ring, this 2000, 2001 period is maybe his peak, at least of his late career where he's physically healthy and, you know, really figured out his character in psychology. Yeah. Agreed. But, you know, we know, unfortunately, they're going to turn him heel about six months after this, and it's really going to be um, the downfall of the business. Literally. 
literally the business falls down to the ground and has never fully gotten up. And yeah, so that is a wrap for this one. Um, interesting show. Glad we covered this. A lot of things. You know, I've always I'd always wanted to talk about um, the reveal of who ran over Stone Cold. So I'm glad we got to cover it here. Oh, absolutely. And I'm delighted to talk about any time where you thought Shawn Michaels is going to be the special <laughs> surprise. I'm trying to think if there's any others or if this is it. I mean, there haven't been that many like mysteries. No. And like it's not like he was going to be the black scorpion or the guy who hit Kevin Nash's limo. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, God, how great would it have been if this was Shawn been... Michaels comeback? I can't even really make fun of it because honestly, that would have been probably the coolest possible thing yeah. to have happen. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who could have been better. Bret, Bret Hart's still in WCW, so they couldn't get Bret back at this point. Yeah, unless somebody's coming over, unless you get like a Hogan or a Nash or Nash, Bret. Nash, yeah. yeah. But yeah, as far as like people who they had available to them, Michaels, I think, would have unquestionably been the best option. Totally. I would have been all the way there for that. Um. So, yeah, next time, uh, going back to WCW, I haven't done a WCW show in a little while. Uh, we got Halloween Havoc 1996. You know, here in the month of October, we do love to cover Halloween Havocs, one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time. Um, 1996, you know, still in the early days of the NWO, we've got Hogan defending the WCW title against Macho Man Randy Savage. Um We've got the Steiner or um, Harlem Heat against the Outsiders. And I don't remember most of the rest of the card, to be honest, but it's such a fun time period for WCW that there's always some quality stuff on the undercard. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it, yet, obviously, it's yet another WCW show that I've never seen before, so I'm looking forward to it. And also, enjoy these while you can, you guys, because there's only three more Halloween Havocs that we've never covered. Enjoy it while it lasts, my friends. So yeah, as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you again next time.